It's good to see you all, and uh, so happy that you have uh, come to uh, the south this morning. Thank you, Al, for your uh, wonderful child of mine marathon, although I do doubt that that was an after photo of Phil. Was it really? Oh, wow. Yeah, no. But I just want to encourage you to, uh, to chat with Al, and um, that would be good to raise that much money. Wonderful. We also have uh, Coldest Night coming up in a couple of weeks. Is Wendy, Wendy, you're here. Wendy, why don't you come up? Because I can tell you're itching to. I didn't think I had much. She was already off a seat before. I... It is now. Oh, can you hear me? For those of you who don't know me, I'm Wendy. I'm not scary. You, I'm you not scary. Out of breath coming from here to here because you I need know. to talk to Al. I was just really excited. <laughs> Maybe I should join the running club. I'm a terrible runner. I'm a good walker. That's why I'm getting on board Coldest Night. How many are familiar with that event? This is good. Well, it's coming up February 24th, and it's going to be right downtown, hosted at Sand Hill Winery to start off. And we're going to do a walk, 2K or a 5K, right, Dawn? Right? And we're going to walk among the street entrenched of our city, sending a message to them that we care. Metro Center is a place for anybody to come who's broken and hurting without an appointment and without parent consent. And they can come there and they can feel love <clears throat> and be equipped and resourced for life change. I work among some of the most vulnerable women in our city and I can tell you that I can't look in the eye and say that this won't make a difference to them. There's an amazing story I'm waiting to tell. I have to get interviewed this week to do it. There's a gentleman in our city who has uh, gone through a measurable amount of pain he called me a couple nights ago and said, this matters to our city, and I want to get behind this, and I want to make a difference. So stay tuned, because I'm going to tell you more about that. Mm-hmm. But you can go on, C-N-O-Y, coldest night of the year. I put little bookmarks on, on your seats today. There's some outside in the lobby. I'll leave them there. There's a Willow Park Church team. I'm going to lead the Willow Park Church team, and my husband's going to lead Delcourt Advisory Group team. So we're going to have two teams, and mine better win against his it's a race. I want $100,000. I'm just telling you, that's what I want. So anyways, can I preach too, Glenn? Because God is good. <laughs> no. The notes are right there. Okay, I'm, I'm vibrating. Look at me. Woo! Anyways, this is, please come. Please come and walk with us. Let's stand side to side. United, right, Trace? I know. This is just the way it is. Anyways. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Glenn. Can I talk again next week and tell Absolutely. you the story? Okay. I'll see you next week. Slightly veiled threat, so yes. <laughs> it's a definite yes. Oh, okay. Wow. Well, uh, let's, um, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew. Thank you, Wendy, and so many good things are happening in our city. Um, I'm excited about that. It's good to enjoy good news. I think that as, uh, as I... I, I, every morning I read the news and, uh, and I, I try and uh, emulate what Spurgeon did a hundred or so years ago. He said you should always preach with a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other. And, uh, and that's how I try and approach my, my speaking. And, and there are so many things now that as I read and I reflect and I listen to that I think, wow, our society and our culture is going in a direction that really, really worries me. And, and as a dad and... You know, I have young adults, I have three young adult children now, and as they're getting closer to 
uh, being, you know, older adults. Apparently puberty goes from 14 to 24 now. It's like, wow. So uh, I don't know why I just shared that. You should write that down, all of you. But I, uh, it concerns me. And, and here, here's what I'm noticing is the less time I spend in the Word of God and the less time I spend praying, the more my concern and desire to control uh, increases. And I have a choice as a dad and future grandparent and, uh, and to a certain extent as shepherd of this expression of Willow Park Church, I have a responsibility to make sure that we don't live communicating fear and panic. I, I don't want to be a dad that brings his children up in the house uh, that is constantly fearful of what's going out on outside in the culture because the reality is the culture is on a trajectory uh, that we as, as Christians uh, are not able to control. We think we can, but the reality is, is we can't. And then I come to the Lord's Prayer, and as I've been meditating on this message this week, I, I realize that everything that we need in order to be great, effective parents, friends, Christians in our community is actually buried in these first two sentences of the Lord's Prayer. You see, whenever we approach Scripture, there's an order to Scripture that is there very purposefully. We need to take note of the order in which Jesus said, pray like this. And if you haven't listened to the last two sermons, I encourage you to do so because it lays a foundation really on what we're going to look at today, which is the first petition, the first ask of the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus very specifically said, pray like this, and starts, as we studied last week, with our Father. And I asked the question, are we children or are we orphans? Are we children of God that live like orphans? And, uh, And Jesus wanted to make sure that when we come to God the Father, that we come in understanding of the relationship that we have with him, that as children, and by the way, I did say, and, and it's somewhat surprising even to hear it, it certainly was something that as I studied it, the realization of it was a surprise to me, is that not everybody is able to pray the Lord's Prayer, because not everybody is actually able to say, our Father, and have that intimate relationship that Jesus was describing outside of a belief in Jesus Christ, you cannot have that intimacy with the Father. And what our culture and society needs above all else, I believe, is this intimacy with the Father. So let's just look at this first uh, couple of verses. It says this in Matthew chapter 6 verse 9, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In that statement is everything that I need to be a Christian who really shows our culture um, the, the, the way that, to live in such a way the way we've been designed to live, the response that we should have, to live not in fear as a parent or as a pastor with what is going on, to not listen to what our government are doing or what our leaders are doing and to bury my head in fear and panic. Actually, everything that I need is in this first, two, this first verse of, of the Lord's Prayer. All the rest of the Lord's Prayer is actually this beautiful uh, petition that I've said every human need, every fear, every challenge that we as individuals, as parents, as friends, as, as employees, employers, and indeed our nation, everything we need is covered by the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus starts with our Father 
in heaven. See, what it tells me, this first statement, our Father is who is in heaven, is first of all, is that Jesus says there's an intimacy. Our Father communicates intimacy. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, do you have that intimacy with the Father? Because you can't effectively pray the rest of the prayer, and I would go even further and say you can't effectively live as a Christian, unless you can say, yes, I have that intimacy. That intimacy that, that is so important. Our Father. A desire, I believe, in those first two words that every human has to have that connection with a Father. Not just an earthly Father, but a divine Father. And so through Jesus, we're invited in. We, we have this access. We have this, this connection with God the Father. But then he doesn't stop there, Jesus. He says, our Father who is in heaven. So on one side, we have the intimacy of the Father. But on the other side, we also have this infinite. So there's the closeness and then there's the infinite that actually heaven communicates. So what does the infinitely capable Father tell me is that Jesus is saying that there's a reminder of who God is. That God is in heaven He is perfectly content. He's not sat there wringing his hands in worry and despair. He knows the alpha to the omega. He knows everything in between. That it's only the arrogance of humanity that actually believes that the answer is to be found in us. Because we've been trying a long time. And if you look at the Greek culture, we are almost mirror to the Greeks apart from we have social media. And so we've been trying our stuff for a long time. And Jesus starts saying, look, you need to have this intimacy with the Father. Then you need to remember who this Father is. He is in heaven. He is sat on the throne, perfectly happy, perfectly content, not worrying, not concerned. That he is able to connect as a Father with the sorrow that we experience. But he's also able to see the whole picture and find contentment and joy and peace in that. So when we pray, we're not praying to somebody who's incapable. We're actually praying to somebody who's actually able to bring fundamental uh, change and transformation to our society. And we are brilliant at convincing ourselves that we can do it. That if you kids can just get that job, or you can just get that degree, or if you can just get that house, and you can be an incredible change to our society. You can be whatever you want to be. And in in a certain extent, I understand the motivation behind saying that, but what it's feeding is that when that doesn't happen, when those dreams are not fulfilled, and when life does actually remind you you're not in control, where are our children and our friends and our co-workers left then if they believe it's all down to them? In guilt and shame, working harder, Whereas we can go to our Father who is in heaven and be secure in the intimacy of our Father, but also in the infinite capability of who He is. See, Paul taught in Acts chapter 17, he's, he stood in the midst of a town center, surrounded literally by idols, and he preaches using each of these idols. And he, and he communicates then that this God, this, this God of the heavens that we're talking about this morning, cannot be contained by human hands. There is no, there is no temple that can contain him. He is the creator, and he's saying he's the God of gods, and he is the one that we come to. And in our, in our challenges, in our frustrations, in our sorrow, and often in our fear and despair, he is the one that says, it's okay. 
Remember last week I said it's okay not to be okay when you have an intimate father. And now we have the infinite father who says, it's okay. Got this. You sleep. I'll stay awake. You know, and we think, why, why pray when we can just worry? Why pray when we can just get really concerned and rant on about how awful the world is? And Jesus says, no, just pray like this. So there's infinite and there's intimate. Intimately capable as a father to answer. In Isaiah 55 and verse 8 to 9, one of my favorite passages in the light of this scripture, it says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, God is saying, look, I'm, I'm so much higher in my understanding of what life is like. Your ways do not come anywhere near. They are an eternity away from the capability that God has. I'm old enough to remember how nations can turn overnight, it seems. I remember the Berlin Wall coming down. And yeah, there was a build-up, but I tell you, when it happened, it happened quick. That the nations can turn, things can happen so remarkably quickly that history reminds us that his ways are higher than our ways. And we get so bogged down and so concerned with our ways that we forget that God works on an infinite level. And yet he says, come to me. So he is so much higher, so much broader, so much bigger, stronger. His ways are mysterious to us. And yet he whispers, come have that intimate relationship with me. And this is where I don't understand. This is where I have to remind myself the scripture says that there's a blindness. That I am incapable as a preacher of taking away from people's eyes and understanding. There's a, there's a blindness that somehow we believe the lie that says you are capable. You can fix this. You can do this. Even when life reminds us that we can't. God says, I am able. I am who I am. He said, I am infinitely capable. So we have this access, this intimacy that only comes through Jesus. And then he moves on. Our Father, who is in heaven, you've got the intimacy, you've got the infinite. And then he says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. This is the first ask of the Lord's Prayer. Now, before we jump into this, one of the things that I've been encouraging you to do is to pray the Lord's Prayer daily. Our Father on Sunday, uh, who, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name on Monday, and, and all the way through the week, you can break it apart that way. You need to understand that in order for the rest of the prayer to actually have that transformation happen in our own lives and the lives of people around us, we come on the foundation of our Father who is in heaven. Then the petition comes, hallowed be your name. The first ask, which is actually, for many of us, we've, we've spent many years reading and praying. And, and, and I said, you know, as a public school teacher in Britain, we used to say this prayer every day. It's kind of, we skip over this. But if we just, just pause for a second, think about what Jesus is actually saying here. Hallowed be your name. It's actually a very strange thing to pray. Hallowed be your name. When I... Um, this word hallowed. There is actually no equivalent word in our English language that fulfills this word hallowed. That's why the translators said, 
Man, we're just going to have to leave that in. I mean, I'm sure that their conversation was much longer and much more scholarly than that. But, you know, essentially that was it. Dude, I got no clue. Okay, let's just throw in hallowed. That's pretty much it. I can say them a lot of time. There's certain words that to us, when we read them, they're, they're, they're not translatable. Uh, it's very difficult to actually fully translate what the word hallowed means. Now, as a Brit living in Canada, albeit a Canadian citizen as well as a British citizen, I still live out this confusion where I know that I say things that actually are untranslatable in the Canadian North American language. And not only just things, but I, I find myself telling stories at the wrong time that is perfectly appropriate in Britain that you can't say in Canada. So, for example, I've shared this before, my very, very first preach in Canada. I was in the church, maybe five, 600 people there. This is some 15 years ago almost. And I, and I was very used to it. I'd been preaching a long time by then. And so, and, and so I stood up. And, and there's this kind of thing that when you've got a new crowd, you feel like you need to break the ice a little bit. So I said, well, my, my name's Glenn. And, and at that time, we'd been married 10 years. So because this is our 25th year of marriage coming up now. And boy, the pressure's on, guys. I had no clue. How many have been married for 25 years or longer? There's this kind of not too subtle pressure that I gotta, I gotta bring, I, I, I gotta do stuff apparently. So, um, yeah, and none of that stuff is cheap. I'm discovering. But anyway, I stood there, and I said, you know, I've been married ten years to my lovely wife Sarah, who sat right there, and Sarah gives me a wave, and I went, you know, but I gotta be honest, even though we've been married ten years, uh, I, I've, you know, I haven't been, I haven't spoken to her for, for eight of those. Because I just haven't wanted to interrupt her. I discovered very quickly that the way you responded is not the way they responded. It's just silence. The only person who laughed was actually, guess who? Sarah. Because in Britain, that's perfectly okay to have little jokes. And the next morning, I tell you no lie that I literally got an email uh, with somebody's name in there offering uh, marriage counseling. Because they, <laughs> welcome to Canada. Thank you. There are certain phrases that are untranslatable from Britain to Canadian. For example, it's the bee's knees. If you actually think about it, what on earth is he talking? Whereas in Britain, that means that this is just, this is the best. This is the bee's knees. Then you've got the proof is in the pudding. Poke in the eye, uh, poke, it's better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. Okay, these are just phrases that just trip off my tongue that are very difficult to translate. I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Because in Britain you have barge poles that used to push the, the, uh, the barges down the canals. You don't have canals and barges in Canada, as I don't think. Certainly no need for barge poles. But you wouldn't touch it with a barge pole, because a barge pole is at least, what is it, like 30 foot long, something like that? So these, these things are very difficult. And then, of course, um, you've got the wrong end of the stick. And then my favorite that I mentioned on Christmas Eve that I'm still hearing about how my mum every Sunday used to enjoy roasting a joint. <laughs> joint is a joint of beef that you roast in the oven. You see, these things you can't say within, they're very difficult to translate. And so the word hallowed is exactly the same. The Bible translators would have been puzzling over how best to translate this beautiful word. And the word literally means, and and, and even now it's hard just to say it in one word, it means to be set apart, it means to be ultimate, it means to be holy. It's it's almost like it's holy fire your name. 
Holify your name. No such word as holify, but that's really the closest that I can get. Holify your name. Let your name be ultimate. Let your name be lifted up. Let your name be the most important. Holify your name. So, without skipping across this, we need to ask ourselves, why is it that Jesus tells us that we should be praying that God would holify his name? Why does God need his name holifying? Remember how when you preach the the Bible or when you come to the Bible and you study the Bible, always be asking yourself the question, why? Why is this here? What is this telling me? Why do I need to pray this? Why does God, why does Jesus instruct us that we should holify God's name? Is God's name not already holy? Is he not already holy? Does he need more holiness? Therefore, does that not make God falling short in some way? So there's there's a couple of things you need to understand in order for us to be able to pray this effectively. So that tomorrow when you pray, hallowed be your name, you understand what it is that we're praying. First of all, God is not progressively getting more and more holy. His holiness is not increasing or decreasing. It is. I am. It is set. He's unchanging. He is, in a large sense, already full of glory, full of holiness. And the Bible speaks to that. It says all through the scripture about the holiness of God that there is none like him. There's an unchanging holiness. It's set. It's standard. But in the same sense, then, how do we add to that? How can we, as failing, struggling people, come to God and somehow add to his holiness? Holify your name. So God, I'm recognizing that somehow you are falling short, so your name needs to be more holy. Now, if you take it that way, that would be the wrong way to look at this scripture. What you're actually saying is not only is God consistently unchanging in his holiness, what we're actually praying is that the world would increase, that the world would benefit from his holiness. So we're asking that his name, his holiness, be abounding in our world, in our community, and not only that, in our own lives as well. We're praying that God would increase in his excellence, holiness, and glory in our world. Because friends, remember what I said right at the beginning, in these two sentences, we find the answer to what our broken world needs. It needs an intimate father in his relationship. It is a recognition that there is a God who is far higher and more infinite than us and also slotted under that, or indeed on top of it might be better, is this hallowing. He, they, we need a world that hallows, holifies God's name. All that God stands for needs to abound and be shown in our world. Even non-Christian scholars who have studied the Sermon of the Mount, which this scripture is buried in, would say this, if the world would live that, we would not have the challenges that we have in society. That if the last could be first, if there was no hatred or anger or lust or divorce or any of these other things that Jesus teaches about, if those things could be done away with, then our culture would reflect somehow the benefit, the joy, the excellence that God's name actually brings us hallowed be your name. You're saying, Lord, let it be that our world is affected by talking about, reflecting your holiness holiness on earth as it is in heaven. That's the first petition. 
And how has God determined that this is to happen? How has God decided his holiness should be shown? How has God decided that his excellence, his beauty, his extravagance, generosity, how has he chosen that this be shown to a broken and needy world is through you and me and those that call themselves Christians. That we are the essence, the fragrance, the reflection, ambassadors, messengers of the holiness of God. That when we actually pray, hallowed, holify your name, in some sense we're actually praying that God's name, God's excellence, God's holiness would increase in our lives so that when we go into the world, that his excellence, his beauty, his hope, his joy, his uh, his, uh, his, his peace, everything that he stands for, his personality and character is shown to this world. Now the scripture just say that his glory is shown through creation. And in the summer I preached on this idea of how scientists fall short and, and admittedly fall short on how to explain what goes on in the universe. It takes tremendous faith. And I preached on this when I preached on Psalm 8. So I encourage you to go back and find that online if you're interested in science and Christianity and how they join together. But his glory is shown in creation for sure. His holiness is shown through his people, through you and me. So when we pray this, we come humbly asking God to holify his people, that his name would be shown in our society and community and that we would actually live lives that would be doing justice to who he is and what he has done, to enable us, to empower us, that he would be made much of through our lives. So that recognizing that what he gives is not to terminate on ourselves and our own entertainment or our own leisure or on our own goals and our own ambitions. But everything that has been provided to us through his common grace is in large part infinitely more about making much of Jesus rather than much of me. That if we could actually live lives where we see that every cent, every dollar, every possession, every relationship... Every connection, every opportunity is there so that as Christians we can holify his name. That it doesn't terminate on me and mine and my desires, but it terminates on making much of him. That's holifying his name. So our Father who is in heaven, you are intimate, you are infinite. Enable us. Holify your name through me, Lord. Holify your name through your church. Holify your name in my city. And do we need it? Holify my name in your name in my neighbors. Let it be that, that your holiness, your standard, your beauty, your truth is shown in my city. It is the ultimate way to pray that the gospel be shared effectively in our lives. Hallowed be your name. It's the petition that all the other petitions stand upon. That we would have the boldness to actually live the life that we've been called to live. That Jesus, in his wisdom, said to us before he left, he said, greater things will you do. Abide in me, and then you go into the world. Pray, do good things, but share the gospel. Make disciples of the nations. Be, be that ambassador for the holiness of God. But it causes me to ask another question. That if there is a need 
for this prayer, then it causes me to ask the question, what is it that actually I'm hallowing? If Jesus is saying we need to pray that his name be holified, hallowed in our lives and in, in, the, in, our, in our city, in our culture, then we have to ask the question, what is it actually then that we're hallowing? What is it that we're making ultimate? What is it that we're holifying? And that's where conviction and confession comes in. Because if we genuinely come to the Lord who loves us, remember, intimate, that he is our Father who loves us, it's okay not to be okay, who is also infinitely capable of bringing transformation, then we come and we say, Lord, this is where the confession comes in. Not only forgive us our sins later, but right now, I confess that actually what I'm hallowing in my life is, and then fill in the gap. What is it you making ultimate? We spent a long time in the fall preaching about worship and how everybody worships. That in some strong sense, there's no such thing as an atheist because everybody has a God. It's just determining what that God is. What is it that you're making ultimate? What is it that you are seeing as your functional savior? What is it that you think will give you? you remember when we talked about the good life? That what do you think is you thriving? How will you get to thrive? Whatever that thriving is for you is your God. You're worshiping that. And so when we come to this, it challenges us. It challenges me to say, okay, Lord, what is it that actually is sitting on the throne of my life? If I'm not hallowing you, what is it that I'm hallowing? Be assured these things most often, hallowed be gap. They're not necessarily bad things. Very often they're really great things. They're good things, things that have been given to us to make much of Jesus, that we actually make ultimate things that then we hallow, we place on the throne. If you remember right in Exodus, then we have God when he's giving his ten commandments. There's the first two commandments that are talking about how we need to make God ultimate. And then the next commandment is this, you shall not take your Lord's name in vain. You shall not use his name in vain. There's huge importance in the Bible to names. And I've spoken before from this pulpit about the power of names and and how uh, names in the scripture are not only something that, um, that it's almost like a foreshadowing. When you named your child, there was much thought put around it because in some way that name was almost a prediction of who they were going to be. And then later, the name itself was, was a description of who they are. So for Sarah and I, we spent a lot of time thinking and praying about and hearing from the Lord about what we wanted to call our children. We didn't just say, oh, that's cool, we'll do that. We wanted to, we wanted to kind of almost spiritually stamp them. That sounds awfully violent, but you know, not literally. But kind of say, as for my children, this is our prayer. Now, that's just something we did because we see that that's in the Scriptures. And I would encourage you, for those of you who uh, are going to be ch- uh, parents and want to be ch- parents, to think about that when it comes to the time of naming your child. But names are powerful. And I've shared many times that I didn't like my name when I grew up because of who I was named after. And I'm just going to leave you hanging to think about who that might be. Let's just say it had something to do with rhinestones and cowboys. I really wanted to be called Peter. I've shared this with Pete. I used to tell people my name was Peter. 
um, up until about the age of 26. I don't know. I was about eight or nine. used to tell my friends that my name was Peter, which got very confusing when I hurt myself one day. And my friends ran off to try and get my mum and tell them that Peter has hurt themselves. And it turned out that it wasn't, it was me. But names are powerful. You know, you think about Gideon, man of valor. Samuel, he hears God. And you have God who said, he gave himself his name and he said, I am. We've already sung it. I am. I am. It's almost like in those two words, the infinite, the intimate, the capability. And then all through scripture, refers to himself over 7,000 times in scripture. Different names, whether it be the El Shaddai, the mighty God, the El Roy, he who sees, the El Rafa, the, the healing God, the, the Adonai, master, uh, the cleansing fire. All these, all these words that he attributed to himself. And he said, this is who my name is. This is who I am. This is my character. This is my personality. If you want to know what that looks like and sounds like and, and reacts like, then look at my son Jesus, who is the perfect reflection of who my name is. But then he said, now you go with the family name, our father, that you have a name, Christians. We have, I have a name. And it's a name that stands on power, integrity, and identity. And it's an animal should be unapologetic about my name. I should not be afraid to share who my name is, whose family I'm part of, what that family stands for. In Malachi 2, verse 5, what a beautiful verse this was when I read it, and I, and I hadn't really spent any time looking at it before, I must admit. My covenant with him, I talking about Levi, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. My promise to him was life and peace and I gave it to him. It was a covenant of fear, reverence and respect and he feared me. He revered me. He respected me. He stood in awe of my name. He stood in awe of my name. What a challenge that is for us this morning. Do we stand in awe of the name? His name. All that he is. Do we stand in awe of that? Do we pray for that to be shown in my life as a dad, as a husband, as a brother, as a friend, as a pastor? That his name would be holified. That his name would be built up. That there would be more evidence in my life of his integrity, power, ability, strength. All the names that he gave himself. What a beautiful word study that is, by the way. Look through the scripture and see all those names that he attributes himself. And then think about this. They live inside of you, Christian friend. Do we stand in awe of that? Are we captured by that? That all of that is possible because of Jesus. Name above all names. Lord of lords, king of kings, gave his life. Because that name, listen, is unattainable outside of Jesus. You do not get that family name by your good works. Because this Bible literally says your good works are the pleasant version, is filthy rags. I don't really want to explain what the literal translation of that is. But your very best day, your most generous day, your most charitable day, the day that you don't swear or kick the cat, 
The day when you just do everything you possibly can to to be a good contributing citizen to our world. If you are not in the family, then that will not fix anything, let alone bring you close to God. Now, I've had the joy, privilege, sorrow of being at many, many bedsides when people have passed away. And as a pastor, that's part of the job description. I tell you, I've been many, many times at bedsides where people who are filled with an awe of his name, with the mark of the holy name of God on their lives, and you can feel it. You can feel it. You can sense it. You stand in awe of it, the beauty of it. That even though deep down inside we know death is wrong at its core, that we know that we've been actually created far more than that, but that in Jesus we can get that back. I've also been at bedsides where people who have not stood in awe of the name of the Lord. And you can feel that too. You can feel that. There's a difference. There is. And I come impartially, trying to be impartial and sense. But there is this emptiness that outside of Jesus, you are not intimately connected to our Father. You are not understanding of the infinite capability of all that stands in you and around you and and, and for you, all that power and capability. That when we hallow his name, that you're actually trying to hallow another name, fill in the gap, whatever that might be, whether it be ambition or money or grades or relationships or husband or wife or children, whatever that gap might be, you're trying to hallow that only to find that hallowing that name does not allow you to feel the awe, the peace, the life that only this name can bring. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, can you actually pray that? Have you come in recognition of who Jesus is and what he did You come, you submit your life to that. You come maybe with shame and guilt and you leave that at the cross and you ask that he change you and forgive you and then he gives you his name. And we stand in awe of that. And Christian friends, do we pray that? Do we pray that his name would be holified? That his character, his words, his actions, integrity. How do you run your business, Christian business owner? Do you run it with integrity in awe of his name? How do we parent? Do we parent in awe of his name? How do we grandparent? How do we friend? How do we work? How do we turn up to this job that you hate? Do we turn up in awe of his name? making much of him, living in the joy and the peace and the life that he promises because of the awe of his name? Do we, do we have that? Because if not, then he says, come to the dad, come to the Abba, come to the Papa, and confess and share that every day. Lord, I hate my job. My boss drives me nuts. This isn't actually my prayer, by the way, just in case some of you are writing that down. God, I need to be able to stand in awe of your name. I pray your name would be hallowed in my life. 
Fill me, Holy Spirit. I pray that your name would be hallowed in my boss's life, in my wife's life, in my husband's life, in my children's life. You can just go on as the Lord leads. What a beautiful prayer. And I finish with this. As we stand in the understanding that just notice who it is that Jesus is praying to. He's saying, our Father, the intimate Father in heaven, infinitely capable, hallowed be your name, because he's recognizing that the only person that can actually bring this transformation, this holy fire, is God himself. So then I look at this, this, uh, this prayer of Paul in Ephesians. I've prayed from this pulpit many, many times, and I'll be doing it again today. Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 17, Paul prays this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. He's praying, hallowed be your name. Listen to it again. That God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, our Father in heaven, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. Who's He? He is the I Am, His name. So the very capability and ability to live out the powerful name of God, He will actually give you that ability yourself, which is why Jesus says, pray for it. Why else would we pray if God was incapable of actually igniting that in your life? So if you actually want that in awe of name and his name to be hallowed in your life, then he is good and gracious and generous to give you that. It's not saying work it out for yourself. I'll see you on the finish line. Hope you get there. He's like, no, I will even give you the ability to do it. Just pray for the wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him that it's a gift. So we pray, O oh Father, be all that you are in heaven and on earth in my life. Enable me to live that. Ignite that in me. Fan that flame to life. And then I will do everything I can. Work out my fear, uh, work out my salvation and fear and trembling. On the basis of the ability and the boldness you give me, I will go and live that out. So maybe in the mornings we should pray, Father, fill me with the boldness to live out that which you've already given me, your name. Show me the opportunities around me. So here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And, uh, and they, I know the song that we're going to sing, which is Miracles. I also know the story behind this. This song was written by a young worship leader, just after his son had passed away, his baby son. And his declaration of who God is, his name, if you like, if you listen to it and sing it through the lens of understanding when he was that he wrote this, it's a powerful song. But it also enables us to be able to center our attention and our heart and our mind upon God, the Father, the intimate one, who is in heaven, who's capable of miracles, hallow your name in my life, everything that your name stands for. So we're going to sing this as a, as a prayer, as a declaration. And uh, 
And as always, if you want some prayer, if you want to talk to anybody about anything that I've said, there'll be people. Uh, sometimes I'm torn. Sometimes I stay here, and other times I go and say cheerio to people. So I'll be at the back today, but we encourage you to come and, and receive some prayer. But right now, let's stand. Let's pray together. Let's sing together. Let's reflect together. Because one of the things that I have not spent time speaking about that Jesus said, our Father. This is a community prayer. So why don't we pray together now before we sing?